0: Good afternoon, and welcome to Lambda Weekly. I'm Dave Taffet here in the studio with Leron Landis. Patty has the day off. Our guest is Michael Roberts. He's the author of the new book, Behind Sacred Walls, The True Story of My Abuse by Catholic Priests. Michael, I hope you can hear us. Can you hear us? Yeah, good afternoon. Hi. Hmm, that signal, not great. Uh, Let's see if it gets a little bit better in a minute um tell how is, us how is that dated? oh that's much better that's hey there that's perfect okay. okay um tell us a little bit more about your book what it, what is it about
1: first i want to say it's an honor to be a guest on your show so thank you for having me um on your show
0: um and thank you for doing this at the last minute because we arranged this like on friday
2: Not a problem. Well, thank you for Uh, coming, because I think this is a great, important book, uh, great, important stories to uh, share.
1: Thank you. Um, My book is a personal memoir chronicling the, the lengthy, agonizing spiritual, physical, and emotional abuse that I suffered at the hands of several Catholic priests and the church hierarchy. Now, I was a young gay teenager struggling with my sexuality in this predator You can call him, found an opportunity to control me, violate me. And this was back in the 80s and lasting into the early 90s. Um, Just another little thing I want to mention is the reason I really wrote the book was for me to regain back my power by speaking out about this abuse rather than just sort of complaining about it or maybe playing the victim role.
0: Yeah, one of the things that I find interesting is that you don't name the priest you You use a, a fictional name for him, and you don't mention the the diocese um, okay. because this was not a book that you wrote out of revenge really it was a you wrote it for catharsis and to help other people
1: mm-hmm, absolutely. I thought it was important for this story to be told and maybe it would resonate with other abuse victims and it just didn't have to you know be an abuse victim brought from a religious. <laughs> Uh, organization was being abused in their own home. I thought it would resonate for them to um, maybe empower themselves and come forward like I, I had through the book.
2: So let's start off. Do you want to start, Lauren? No, I was just going to say if you could um, just start at the beginning. How did this start? How old were you? Um, you know this these okay. unfortunately you- these stories have been in the news with priests for decades now mm-hmm. um, but when you first started you know when this first started happening to you I don't think it was really in the news that much not many people knew about it or did they
1: well first it was it was unheard of nobody back in the 80s would even you know question priests being gay or, or even you know abusers. Mm-hmm. Um, so the mindset back then was, um, I, I use sort of an analogy, you know, parishioners, it's like an iceberg, you see just the top portion of the iceberg, but 90% is below the water, so, um, you know, people really didn't see what was going on in, in rectories and in situations, because people didn't want to even believe that a priest could be, you know, could do this. Right. Um, I was 17 when this all began. And this was partly in Duke. I didn't have a relationship with my father, a strong relationship with him. I was very close to my mother. and I struggled um, you know, you know being a gay man, you know in, I, I kept it quiet like you know back then, I think to talk about it was um, putting yourself in danger. Um, so I was, you know, concerned um, that my parents may find out. I hid my sexuality. Um, And because I didn't have a relationship with my father, I gravitated towards the priest who gave me the attention that I was looking for. He would take me out to dinners. he would buy me gifts, he sort of made me feel special. And I saw him as a father that I didn't have. So for me, that's what really kind of happened. I gravitated towards the priest at 17, thinking also that I could also find answers to things that I had questioned about religion. And, you know, religion was a very important part of my life. I mean, I was an altar boy. I went to uh, Sunday uh, Mass. I went to Catechism, which is their version of uh, Sunday school. Um, So I was very integrated, very ingrained in the whole Catholic Church and its dogma.
2: Um,
1: So that's how it began.
2: So, you know, I mean, you mentioned, you know, I guess part of this grooming is, you know, he, he would buy you gifts, he would take you out to dinner. And there's a portion here in your book that I read when he took you out to um, dinner one night and how uh, being seen or being accompanied with a priest, you automatically get preferential treatment. Um, mm-hmm. But did your parents, did I, you know, whether you were that close to your dad or not, did either one of them even hesitate? To like, okay, you're spending a lot of time with this adult man, or is that just not even thought of because he's a priest?
1: Yeah, I I believe my parents had no clue since Father Gregory. Um, he didn't come across as being a gay man. He was quite charismatic, uh, somewhat masculine, and you know he could swear with the best of them he would drink scotch, which kind of only added to this man-man's persona. Um, The thought of a priest being gay, like I said, in the 80s was not even possible, inconceivable to my parents. So their thinking was, wow, our son might become a priest. What an Mm -hmm. honor. He's hanging out with a priest, he may become a priest. I mean, Father Gregory quite often would say to my parents, he'll be a priest, whether he likes it or not. So (laughs) I think they grew comfortable with me possibly being a priest, and they trusted him because he was such a charismatic uh, man's man. Um, you know, so, you know, that was unheard of. It was unheard of for a priest being gay.
0: Now, your family was a very religious family also, wasn't it?
1: Yeah, very religious. Um, just to add to your question before that was, I always hoped they would suspect something when things got really out of control. I mean, he would leave love letters I would hope that they would find one, but I was always so scared, so I would burn the letters in the backyard. I would dig up some grass and burn them and then put the grass back. Um, He had bought matching rings. Um, Sometimes he would fondle me under the dining room table when we were having a meal. So I always hoped that they would suspect something, but they never really suspected anything. My parents were extremely religious. Um, Like I had mentioned, they you know, not only made us go to Sunday school, church, um, but we also would make sure that we had no meat on, uh, during Lent on Fridays. We, you know, have the, had ashes put on our forehead during Ash Wednesday. And, um, you know, we had to go to confession and communion and confirmation. And so I was, church was a very big part of our life. My mother would have her, the Sunday meal cooked right after Mass. Um, So, they, you know, she. it's funny because I remember as a kid, my mother having a plastic statue of Jesus that would glow in the dark. Um, and she would have, you know, statues around the house. She would be sitting in her rocking chair with her rosary beads. And I remember at one point, I even wore a scapula around my neck. A scapula is sort of a, to me, it, I describe it as, it looks like two tea bags attached to a string uh, but they were sort of supposedly protecting you from uh, so-called going to hell. So, yeah, religion mm-hmm. was an extremely important part of uh, of the house. My parents, well, my mother was especially religious. My father was sort of just <laughs> sort of a follower.
0: Why do you think the priest chose you or or was he abusing others also?
1: Um, I was introduced to him by my friend Peter, who I spoke about in the book. Now, Peter, it was a different situation. Peter wanted to become a priest. So the priest that was stationed at my home parish before Peter, uh, before um, Father Gregory arrived, was uh, Father Amos. And they had a very good relationship, uh, Peter and Father Amos. But then when Father Amos, uh, was sent to another parish and Father Gregory took over. Uh, Peter believed that he had to become friends with this new priest because he wanted to pursue seminary life. Um, so he became very close to Father Gregory, my friend Peter, and, uh, but I didn't know what was really happening. My, my friendship with Peter was sort of dissipating and his was starting to blossom with this, this priest. So I was eventually, I found them working in the front of the church and I ended up um, in front of the rectory and I ended up um, being introduced and that's sort of how it happened. Um, I was introduced to this priest who eventually contacted me wanting me to do more work around the church. Um, So but the reason I think that I was a target is probably because most people most people have heard of the word pedophile which is um, those who like pre-cubescent children. But they haven't heard of the other categories. There's three other categories. One is a hebeophile, uh, and they like children at the cusp of of puberty between sort of the ages of 11 and 14. And then there's hebeophile, which are attracted to 15 and 16-year-olds. And then there's one other classification, which I found interesting, is teleophile, who prefer those 17 years of age and older. So most likely Father Gregory was a teleophile. He liked sort of the... Young teenagers from 17, maybe 16, 17 years of age, because my friend um, Peter was 16, I was 17. Um, and he, he found that I was an easy access, as I would call it. And he was able to groom me very, by building a relationship with me and my parents, sort of this emotional connection. Um, you know, and, you know, he bonded with my parents. And, and then that sort of began. His, his grooming process. And then, you know, then there was more extreme things where he, I, I tried to isolate me from friends. Um, he would call me 10 times a day. I had to actually report where I was at any given moment. Wow. I remember, I remember waking up at, just happened to wake up at two, three in the morning. And I heard a car coming up the street. I just happened to peek out the window and it was him and his car driving by. At two or three in the morning, so he was a little bit obsessed and crazy. I mean, any if I didn't, if he couldn't understand my timeline, he would question me. So he was very crazy, addicted, neurotic—I mean, whatever word you would, you could use. So, so
2: you, you um, correct me if I'm wrong. You did realize you, you, that you were gay um, prior to the abuse.
1: Well, you know. I knew of the word, but I didn't understand the word exactly. Back in the 80s, you had no role models. There was Mm -hmm. nothing on television. Um, I mean, now you have Anderson Cooper and Ellen and, you know, Modern Family and Will and Grace. You have so much, so many gay role models today. I mean, they even have Gay Straight Alliance in high school. But you never had any role models back in the 80s. You might have saw, you know, maybe the 80s bands with makeup on, but they weren't necessarily considered gay. Elton John even was in the closet at that point. So I was afraid because the role models that I had were bosom buddies where men were in drag. Uh you would hear stories of uh you know, gay pride on television. They would show sort of the craziness in the bizarrely dressed people, but they wouldn't show the normal people. The normal gay, you know, now you have athletes today, you have politicians and lawyers and celebrities that are gay, but back then they didn't show that. They showed sort of the oddness of being gay. So I was sort of, I knew I was different. I felt I was sort of a mutation, sort of abnormality of life. And I struggled with that because I believe that people thought that being gay was a sickness. You wore women's clothing. You were um, attracted to little children. So, I, I might have I might have known the word, but I didn't know I didn't have any role models, or really felt comfortable being. I, I wasn't comfortable being gay. I didn't yeah. want to be gay.
0: And Michael, it was forbidden in the Catholic Church.
1: That was the struggle I had. Yeah, yeah. I you know they pontificate from the pulpit, you know, all the way from the Vatican to all the way down about homosexuals being sin and cast into hell and deviant behavior and and the list goes on, absolutely.
2: Okay. Uh,
0: okay, I was going to ask, um, okay, so he followed you. He uh, got you to report to him constantly. Uh, mm-hmm. You spent a lot of time with him. When did the first rape take place? A- and I'm just throwing it out there. It, it was rape.
1: Absolutely. Um, you know, he built this sort of bond and relationship. I mean, not only, he, he took me on a vacation um, he bought me lots of gifts, like I mentioned. So, and my parents, you know, invited him to dinner. He was a weekly guest at our house several times a, a, a week. He actually, I don't know why, he would sometimes sleep over the house, I and mean, he was literally five minutes away from the rectory. So they sort of, my parents, I guess you could say, unconsciously adopted him like a son. Um, but what happened was, um, we would watch TV in his room, and laugh and he would drink his scotch and he tried to get me to drink scotch i was underage and when i first tasted i didn't like it um but he had told me to close my eyes it was one specific evening we were watching um, a movie oddly enough the movie was oh god Mm. and george burns um but he ended up shutting the, the movie off and telling me to close my eyes and then not to open them and he was very adamant i didn't open so when i did open my eyes after he told me to he had candles lit. He had wine and glasses displayed. Cheese platter. He had put on some soft music. And I, when I, and I, I wasn't quite sure what was happening. I was sort of in shock. I'm like, this is quite odd.
0: So you didn't look at that that's scene when, and say, "Gee, this is romantic."
1: I didn't know what to make of it. Right. I, I, it was very odd. I mean, and that's when he. I mean, I again, I was. 17, I didn't even know what being romantic was. I mean, I was, I lived in a very small town, a, a town that was uncultured. Most people never, you know, I mean, I wasn't, you know, a city smart person. I knew nothing about art and culture. I mean, I really never traveled anywhere. I think the I went to Florida and I went to Canada. That was pretty much it at that point.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: That
0: was not cultured. And, and when I ask you, you didn't think this was romantic, and I, I'm not suggesting it was, I'm suggesting that he thought it was exactly absolutely
1: he thought that would set the mood and he even said you know I wanted to set the mood he first sat down and he was to tell me that he was attracted to me he told me about a relationship that he had with another priest uh, named Father Anthony in another state and that Father Anthony didn't want to be in the relationship with him anymore because they were not sexually compatible and as I was listening I'm sort of in shock, I'm, I just this is not this is so bizarre to me you know, because here I was told my whole life that a, a priest is God's representation God's representation on earth, and I'm being told these sort of shocking things, and I actually excused myself and went to the bathroom and I remember shutting the door and looking out the window and wanting to escape, I felt sort of like a trapped tiger and I stayed in that bathroom for a very long time until he called me and said, are you coming out? And it was very frightening for me because you have to realize there was a struggle going on in my head. There was God being disappointed, you know, feeling that I would disappoint God, disappointing a priest. Um, if if this was were the people in the parish going to treat me like Frankenstein's monster and come after me with pitchforks and. You know, I, there was so much happening in my mind because um, I knew at that point that this was leading to something. I wasn't quite sure what he was planning on doing, but I knew that this was not going in a good direction. So I finally came out and sat down and that's where he got up and decided to stop massaging my back. And I knew that this was not going in a good direction. And, you know, I pleaded with him to stop and, you know, things sort of progressed. And, um, and I think part of it was that I felt I was sinful in nature. I was told I was sinful in nature. I was told by society that PA was wrong. I was told by the church. And things had happened throughout my life that maybe sort of kind of confirmed it. I mean, I was bullied in school.
0: Michael, being, Michael, we need to take a break. Yep. Sure, so absolutely. This is a perfect time to, to take that break. Uh, you're listening to Lambda Weekly on 89.3 KNON-FM. I'm Dave Taffet here in the studio with LaRon Landis, and our guest is Michael Roberts. His new book is Behind Sacred Walls. Um, we'll be back with more Lambda Weekly right after this.
1: I'm Jelinski Brown with Research Center United Black Element, and I listen to Lambda Weekly radio program on 89.3 K9, the voice of the people. I am the people, so hear me speak.
0: And this is Lambda Weekly. Our guest is Michael Roberts. He's the author of the new book Behind Sacred Walls. Michael, where can people get your book?
1: Um, right now, it's available only for download—Amazon uh, ebook, uh, Barnes and Noble's Nook, I think they call it. So you can download load it via ebook, um, but it will be out on paperback within the next few days to a week because of sort of the. Uh, Uh, Paper shortages and staffing shortages, things are sort of running behind. But you can expect it within, like I said, a few days to a week. Uh, It should be available on paperback. Um, And it's actually going to be on Booktopia and thriftbooks.com. There's several handful of websites that uh, this book will be on. So just be patient. And um, I am giving a portion to um, an organization called SNAP. It's Survivors Network of Those Abused by Priests. Um, so a portion will be going to uh, that organization
2: to help help others. Oh, that's, that's a great idea. Um, just before the break, we were uh, you were speaking about, you know, uh, the first um, physical interaction you all had um, sexually, um, rape, mm-hmm. you know, um, and what led up to it. And, um, you know, I was just thinking, you know, other um, survivors that I have met with, um, or spoken with, you know, who were, were raped, sexual abuse, you know, they talk about how in the moment they knew in their mind that this wasn't right, something is just weird, something just probably shouldn't be happening, but it's also complicated because of the physical of it because your body, it, it actually feels good. And I know that it might be sh- strange for some people to hear that, but it's like a really complicated situation, especially for a young person. Would that be accurate way to describe it?
1: Well, when this was ha- actually happened to me, I, I was in shock, but my survival mechanism was to dissociate. Mm-hmm. Uh, a therapist will explain that dissociation is that your body is present, but your mind is sort of adrift somewhere else. And she said that happens to a lot of victims. And it's, it was, in my case, it was a good thing that it happened, because if you don't always dissociate from the sexual violence, sexual trauma, sexual abuse, some people become schizophrenic. Um, some people, you know, it ends up destroying them, even with you know committing suicide and so forth. Um, so, but for me, I I, I felt my body was there, but I was emotionally somewhere else. Um, did I enjoy it? Uh, no. I, I it's it's uh, I, I was so paralyzed. Yeah. With fear, um, I was so. Scared that this was actually happening to me that um, yes, I may have had the orgasm but I was not enjoying it I don't know, it's, it's sort of hard to explain in a sort of physiological way
2: No, that makes so. sense So
0: when you went home did you tell your parents? What did you do?
1: I was afraid to tell my parents mm-hmm. I mean, would they even believe me? You know, my, you know he's sort of would say things like, your parents will never know, and you know, a priest needs to be pleased. Um, God likes it when you please a priest. Um, So I got, when he said, you know, your parents will never know, I felt as though if I went to them and mentioned something to them, he might say that I, you know, he might have convinced them that I was the perpetrator. I was sort of the one who targeted him. or I mean, I had all kinds of scenarios, and I was even afraid to even to them what actually happened. Mm -hmm. I mean, in my mind, my mother thinking gay sex would be vile. The thought of it would be vile. So I guess I was sort of, in a way, maybe protecting them from those thoughts of it happening. And um, I remember I wanted to talk to them one time. I um, I went to their bedroom and said, you know, I'm having some issues with him and I don't like his personality. I sort of just said I don't particularly like being his friend and their response was, you know, he's done so much for you. You all have faults. Sort of overlooked it. You know, and I I just couldn't get the courage to tell him that this was happening to me.
0: So so when did you go back? How soon till you saw him again after the first race?
1: Oh, he was back. He was back the following day he was one who like i said was at the house all the time i mean i it wasn't unheard of he would during the summer he was in his speedos with scotch in hand sitting by the swimming pool he was i mean he he could easily easily be at the house three four five six times a week even sometimes several times a day he was five minutes away so it was very convenient for him um and you know he's so integrated himself with the family that he you know Hung out by the pool for hours, laid in the sun, got canned, laughed, you know, made my parents laugh. And I think that was difficult for me because my parents were having a wonderful time with him, having a great friendship. And I didn't want to, part of me didn't want to destroy that. There was just a lot going on I in my mind, destroying the relationship, um, telling them this was happening. You know, with with my parents had a, a good reputation in the town with the people in the town. Um, all of a sudden, go against my parents, go against me, for being sort of this what I thought this sick, vile human being. So it was a very complex situation. I, I guess the bottom line is I tolerated this so that my parents didn't have to deal with knowing what was actually happening to me. I was I was more concerned about what they would know. About what was happening, I felt I could handle this, and I did. I stayed quiet.
2: So, how often did these encounters happen after after the first time? And did you just come to expect them?
1: Well, he had a he had a, a pastor, so there was two of them at at the rectory. He had a pastor, um, pa- Pastor Gabriel. A pastor is sort of. You, know, you you have two priests in the rectory. One is a pastor. He's sort of the head honcho, I guess you could say, uh, in charge. And uh, he was gone three, four days a week. Um, so that was usually when it would happen. On those days that Pastor Gabriel was, Gabriel was gone, and he was a much older man. I mean, he had—he uh, was his vision was not very good, and hearing was not good, I and mean, he would sit literally one in front of the television so that he could hear and see what was going on. Uh, His sermons, people hated going to his Mass because his sermons would last 20 to 25 to 30 minutes, and he would repeat himself. So he should have been retired years before, but... So, you know, Father Gregory sort of had a perfect situation. He had a priest that was not sort of oblivious to what was going on, and one that was gone three or four days ago. And that's when things would sort of happened with me.
0: Now, this happened when you were 17. Were you a senior at the time or were you just a junior?
1: I believe I was Oh, let me see. I'll tell you um I had I was a senior. Okay, was, so
0: you were a senior. So you were off to college then, right?
1: No, not yet. I wasn't I was I had graduated that spring of 83. So um, I didn't go to college till, well, he had convinced me, it, it's a very complicated story, he convinced me to go to seminary, um, the school, you go, to, you go four years to seminary, then you go four years to theology. My friend Peter went to a seminary for four years, then he went to North American College in Rome and studied there for three years, and then he, he had, it was one year away from being a priest when he left the priesthood, but he convinced me that I was going to go to the seminary, and I tried to convince him that I just wanted to go to school just one semester to um, just, you know, get some credits. Mm-hmm. And then I said, you know, maybe if I get some credits, then I'll transfer them to the seminary. But I just wanted to go back to school. So I went to a local community college, um, and I had to convince him because he was not... I mean, he was he controlled me. He ordered... To realize, he we went to a restaurant. He ordered my food. Uh, he took me to a clothing store and bought me clothes. Um, he chose, eventually, chose the car that I was to drive. Um, I was completely controlled by this person, emotionally, sort of trapped. Um, when he said that you're going to be at the rectory that evening, I was there, whether I liked it or not. I mean, I I was so I had so you know low self esteem. I was so beaten down emotionally that if he said jump, I would jump.
0: How long did this go on? Yeah, I was sort of
2: about to ask.
1: Uh, from 17 to so what?
2: What's that? I said from 17 years of age to about I what? My
1: early tw- till I was in my early 20s. And, um, you know, I'll give you an example of something. We, he had taken me to, uh, to a cottage near the ocean for a vacation. Somebody in the parish owned this cottage that he could use. And he looked for any, he was the kind of person who looked for any kind of benefit with any of the parishioners, you know, money, gifts, cottages. And I remember going to the cottage with him and him not wanting to feed me, because the housekeeper packed us a lunch and a dinner and breakfast, and he would not feed me until we would have, uh, you know, intimate times, a sexual time. So I, I felt sort of an emotional prisoner. I mean, there were no walls and gates around me but i was sort of a, this sort of emotional prisoned person um and i didn't know how to get out of this i i felt trapped um and then i when i wanted to break away i confronted my i had mentioned my uh my boss who was uh father oliver i wanted to mention to him that this was happening to me and he ended up abusing me and then my third attempt... So,
0: wait, wait, you you just glossed right over that one. Were, yeah. So you went to uh, the priest who was abusing you, you went to his superior, and instead of go listening ahead. to your story, he abused you.
1: Well, I didn't go to his superior. What happened was Father Gregory, who was abusing me, got me a part-time job. Because I needed money. I was, you know, a, a teenager. I needed some money. He got me a job where he could control me. He got me a job working as cutting lawns at a mausoleum. So I was, my day was basically mowing lawns all day. But a priest at another parish was looking to hire someone. It was a much bigger, it was more of a cathedral. This, his, he knew Father Gregory, Father Oliver knew Father Gregory. And I was offered a job at that cathedral at another location to work as a head sexton, you know, doing the readings, uh, setting up for the mass, cleaning up after the mass, cleaning up the pews, and setting up for the bingo hall in the basement. Mm-hmm. So, I, my boss, who was at another parish where I would go to a job every day, I wanted to tell him about what was happening with what was happening to me with Father Gregory, and he decided to abuse me at the same time. Um, and I talk about that. detail in the book how I really felt I finally had a voice and then I went to this priest but then the voice was sort of smothered again. Um,
2: That that almost brings up a question or I think maybe some people wonder are priests who abuse young children, young boys are they kind of in on it with each other? And there's a part of your book um, I want to read and you... uh, you talk about how he took you out to dinner a lot, um, as we mentioned earlier, when you're seen with a, po- with a priest, you get preferential treatment, and so it made you feel special. But here's this one part. Um, as we were walking to our table, we passed two men, one of whom was a priest I had seen before, and the other a younger, and the other a younger male companion. Father Gregory stopped to greet the priest, "I see, you, I, um, I see you're having chicken tonight." It looks like you plan to have a tasty dish yourself," the priest replied. Now you go on to further describe how you later found out that that is a gay slaying for older men who um, who have relationships with young with younger men or younger boys. Um, do you think they were in on it?
1: Well, I I, I believe yes. I believe the, the well he was um, soon to be bishop, so he was the auxiliary bishop. I. He, I was, uh, Father Gregory explained to me that he was, I thought he was just a priest, but he did have a big crucifix hanging in the middle of his chest, and um, I thought that was a little odd because it was quite large crucifix. He explained that was the auxiliary bishop who will become bishop, and he was with a younger man, this bishop. And when they were sort of having their conversation, um I am saying to myself, are they referring to chicken as
2: <laughs> like you know, a real dish?
1: <laughs> I, I, I wasn't quite sure what they were, why they were talking in those sort of terms. I mean, later I understood maybe it was related to me, or but then when he said you're having a tasty dish, I see tonight. You know, you put two and two together. I, I right, think he was talking about me. I wasn't 100 percent sure, and I wasn't quite sure who this younger man was. And he told me oh, he just his escort for the evening. Um. And come to find out this bishop actually was accused strangely enough years later um and he had passed away, so nothing was ever nothing ever happened to him because there was never any a uh, court because when the, when the bishop died there was you know nothing who can you accuse at that point
0: okay, so you were abused or raped by this uh person who was about to become a bishop, but that led to number three.
1: No, 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 I wasn't a, I was accused by Father Gregory. This bishop was just happened to be at the restaurant. Yeah. Uh, I, I don't want to get anybody confused. He was just at the restaurant with a, another young person, and I, their, their conversation uh, was a little weird, you know to me that they were sort of talking about their their two escorts. I mean I was sort of Father Gregory's escort for the evening. I think part of me, I also believe that Father Gregory went to that restaurant at that time because he knew that maybe the soon-to-be bishop would be there and that he knew that the soon-to-be bishop was there. But no, I was not molested by the bishop. or the Oh, okay. Bishop. I was only, only Father Gregory and Father Oliver, Father Oliver, who was my boss at that other church.
2: Right. So, okay, so you say well after you've graduated high school the abuse continued into your early 20s. Some people would say uh-huh. Okay, why you, you're you're legally an adult now? Why can't you didn't leave stop? And you've explained that he had total control over you mentally and emotionally. Had you shared this with anyone though, like maybe a friend? Have you talked to anybody about what had been going on?
1: Not at all because I was afraid of being known as being a gay man. I didn't want anybody to know. And you have to realize, too, that every time I sort of got this sort of inner strength, something happened. Like I say, when I went to my parents and they said, you should appreciate what he does for you. The second time was Father Oliver. The third time, we had a house fire. And, you know, I, But the priest, convinced my parents that I would live at the rectory. So I lived at the rectory for many months while the house was being rebuilt. I couldn't put... Put that burden onto my parents. They had to deal with the insurance company, redesigning the house, we you know cleaning the house, getting rid of stuff. And I said, now I'm going to tell my parents that here this is happening to me. I felt I was always something was always happening where I was sort of beaten down, and I just couldn't vocalize what was happening to me.
0: We need to take another break. So. The story's been working out perfectly for our breaks. Uh, The book is Behind Sacred Walls. The author is Michael Roberts. The paperback edition is coming out this week, so look for it wherever you get your books. We'll be back with more Lambda Weekly right after this. And this is Lambda Weekly. Our guest is Michael Roberts. The book is Behind Sacred Walls, the true story of my abuse by Catholic priests. Um... So, let's move the story ahead a little bit. When did you finally break that cycle, and how did you do it? Well,
1: I ended up convincing him that I was going to move to a big city, and he was very much against it. But I had met somebody, and that was done secretly. I mean, I had to keep that particular relationship a secret. But eventually, I did move away, and he would still call 10 times a day. And, but my relationship ended rather quickly with my partner that I kept secret from him. I mean, I would drive back to the rectory in order to see Father Gregory. And then I would drive back to my apartment in the city to be with my partner. And it was sort of this sort of living this, these do lives. I had put on a different mask. And it was really difficult. So when my relationship ended, partly due to this priest abuse, um, because I sort of became, I picked up behaviors like being controlling and, and so forth. But the priest would call me, and at the end of every conversation that we had on the phone, he'd say, I love you. But this one specific day, I couldn't say it. I just could not get the words out. And I ended up, releasing this, you know, torrent of anger. How could you do this to me? You destroyed my life. How evil you are. And I went on and on, and I described in the book you know, this anger and rage that I had towards him. And my final question is, I'm screaming and saying, how could you do this to me? And his answer that resonated, even to this day I can hear it, is because you let me.
2: Mm.
1: And that's when I...
0: So smashed he, the phone So he, he was yep. putting up the case that this was all consensual.
1: Yeah, I guess you could say that. That's a good point. Yeah. And I knew I needed help. I actually felt suicidal. I felt I didn't want to live anymore. But I also knew that I needed help. So I remember getting in my car and driving to the main hospital in that city and going to the psych- psychology ward and... I talk about my experience in the psychology award. And then that led to me wanting to, some retribution. At first it wasn't about the money. I actually went to speak with the bishop, but the bishop didn't want to see me. He had me speak with his auxiliary bishop, who I describe in the book as sort of, you know, Liberace's doppelganger. And Mm -hmm. he talked like Liberace, sort of very feminine like Liberace. And they basically wanted to sweep it under the rug. They really didn't, you know, I remember the auxiliary bishop calling me a week later and says, I'm glad you're still in therapy. Take care. (laughs) Mm. So it was sort of swept under the rug. And and then I knew I had to do something. I had ended up getting a lawyer who I mentioned that was sort of inept. Um, And then I ended up firing her and getting another lawyer, which was my saving grace. This is the law firm.
0: Was going to the police not an option?
1: Well, that, I thought, brought a whole nother path. Then you have publicity in the paper, my parents being exposed, um, you know, the whole thing with, I don't know, I think it was more I was afraid. I was afraid of what happened, you know, publicity and it being in the paper and, you know, and I was, you know, I was still afraid of being a gay man, of, you know, being well, somebody's
0: were you also afraid of it being his word against yours, and who are you going to believe, the priest or this 20-year-old?
1: Absolutely. Yeah. I was a sinner. I was a nobody. He was well. He was a charismatic. Everybody loved this man. He could do no wrong. Yeah. So yeah,
0: And, that's and like you said, so this wrong. was in the 80s. I remember one of the original cases against a priest was here in Dallas. It was the Rudy Koss case, and mm-hmm. um, he was convicted. And that was 1992. So, but that was one of the original uh, cases. So, this was before any of this had come out.
1: Absolutely, yeah. It was it was in the early 80s, and um, he was eventually put on leave. They just put him on leave in 93, 1993. We settled in 94. But what's interesting is in the book talks about. Father Oliver in the 80s could have reported it to the bishop, so father, people knew, Father Oliver knew. My friend Peter went and told the bishop and the bishop's assistant about what was sort of happening to him, they knew in the 80s, but they did nothing. It's almost as though you needed to get a lawyer in order for them to sort of wake up, but even when they do wake up, they have a very powerful attorney, and he was really quite nasty i remember him i was being spied on i was getting death threats um i remember i was doing go-go dancing because i wanted to be able to pay for school and survive and pay rent and i would at that time they had go-go dancers dancing on top of bars and i remember uh my lawyer calling and said they followed you and they said that you're prostituting and i was furious and that I shouldn't go to trial because I'm a prostitute, and of course I wasn't, I was just a go-go dancer, against the law, and I thing just regular bars, so they were playing very nasty they were they were you know they a lawyer was just playing they were playing nasty instead of really listening to what happened and um he was defrocked in two thousand and fifteen, so from the eighties when some of them knew all the way to two thousand and fifteen
2: that's a, a long time.
1: It, it was a very long time. And the case was actually sent to the Vatican in Rome in 2005. So the Pope knew about it from 2005 until 2015. So it took the Pope 10 years. Mm. So it was, it was a very frustrating time in my life because nobody wanted to hear,
2: nobody wanted to listen. So when it, when it finally came out, um, how did your parents react?
1: well i had i didn't tell my mother the exact truth. I just told her that uh I just want him to seek help and originally that's what I wanted. I wanted him to be removed and to seek help and that's what i told bishop um let me make I get the right uh Bishop uh Gideon who was an uh, an assistant to the that new uh priest who became bishop but anyways, I had told him um that I just wanted him to get, seek help and to be removed. And, and my mother thought, okay, he just wants Father Gregory to get help. But then eventually, obviously, you get lawyers involved. That changes the scenario. So my mother was like, I thought you just wanted him to get therapy and now you're seeking money. And I said, you know, it was the only way that they could actually listen to me. I had to explain that to my mother. But I never really gave her the details of what happened. I mm-hmm. just said he was inappropriate, um, he was, you know, sexually did some things. I didn't give her specifics, so they were sort of not in the...
0: How long did it take till she believed you? Or did she believe you uh, as soon as she heard it from you?
1: I think she... In their own mind, they believed me, but I don't think... They never really talked about it, and that was the hard thing for me. They really never, you know, talked to me about the details and what actually happened. I mean, it's funny because I just sent the book to my mother... Uh, they're on vacation for five months Uh, they escape sort of the the, the weather here but they she said she'll lead it uh, in the next few weeks so it'll be interesting to see her reaction because I would say about 75% of the story she has no clue because again she still goes to church still does her rosary she still has this sort of connection with the church and priest and um, I don't You know, she did, I remember her telling me that the priest showed up one time at the house and she did um, ask him, did you have sex with Michael? And he said, yes. And, um, but you know, he was messed up and I was trying to help him. And my mother said, please leave and don't ever come back. And that was the extent of their sort of anger. But they never really, um, you know, maybe I wanted them to be more angry. I wanted them to knock on the bishop's door Scream and yell,
2: you know, but they were sort of, you know, the quiet type. So, you know, you you say part of the reason why you wrote this book is to help other people. And unfortunately, because these stories with Catholic priests have been in the news for decades now, um, what would you say? well, Well, first of all, would you say things are easier or better for now for survivors who have the courage to come forth and say something?
1: Well, I, ha- I had lost hope a few years back. This was before uh, maybe like 2013, 14, 15. I remember hearing a story of this priest who had molested 200 little girls. And he, when he was arrested, there was a picture of him in the newspaper of him crying. And a whole bunch of priests in the diocese, I, I'm going to say about 20 priests in the diocese decided to get together and do a petition to the newspaper saying that that was really inappropriate putting a picture of the priest crying. And I looked at the list of priests, and I'm like, oh my God, that's one of the new priests at my own diocese. Mm. So I said to myself, you've got to be kidding me. They actually petitioned the newspaper saying that it was inappropriate, but what about the little children that he molested? Exactly. So I said to myself, I don't think they get it. I really don't think they get it. But you know what? This new pope finally, um, before before uh, before last year, so 2021, before that, bishops didn't have to necessarily report the abuse. Sometimes they would move priests around. Sometimes they would just put them on a sort of a, a, a leave of absence. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it was interesting because in 2021, last summer, the Pope came out and changed the Vatican code of canon law. And he it's now, and it's one of the most significant changes uh, contained in two specific articles, 1395 and 1398, which aim to address the shortcomings in the church handling of sexual abuse uh, it recognizes that adults, not only children, can be victimized by priests who abuse their authority. Uh, priests can be bishops, can be culpable, and can be removed if they don't report the crime. So they really put in a lot of new laws now. But it's taken so many years. This is only last year. It took effect actually December eighth.
0: Oh wow! And weren't these old laws that uh, that it's replacing? They
1: were old laws. Yeah. Absolutely, they were old laws, but they were. Um, the last time it was rewritten was in 1983.
0: Oh, I thought this. Uh, I thought these were from like years and centuries ago.
1: Well, no, there was it was so vague. Uh, there is um, in, in 1983 there was a code that was written, but lawyers and bishops complained it was completely completely inadequate to deal with the sexual abuse of minors, since it was so complicated. Uh, complicated and required time, you know, consuming trials and gave accused priests plenty of defenses to avoid penalties or even exonerated on appeal. So, I mean, it was a very, comp- it was very, it wasn't a very detailed law, uh, you know, and also the code was explicitly made conducting those trials as a last resort. A lot of times, like I said, they would just move them around and, um You know, it was more about the image of the church back then, Mm -hmm. protecting the image. Obviously, they paid me off quietly in the hopes that I wouldn't reveal Father Oliver, Father Gregory. Um, And I signed a nondisclosure. But my friend, who also settled for a very small amount, very minuscule amount, he decided, even after he settled with the diocese, he decided to go um, to the newspaper and, you know, you can see the articles about this specific priest in the newspaper because uh, he went forward I didn't hey. and, um, I'm oh. surprised that he never got any repercussions from it but so we have just uh, a
0: couple of minutes know. left sure did you get counseling eventually how, how did you ever manage to have a normal relationship
1: yes during the time where we were trying to negotiate with the church to settle, I was with several therapists Um one specific therapist that I would worked with gave a very detailed report I mean it was 12 or 15 pages long very detailed and I put aspects of it in the book um, and then I had therapy throughout these years over the decades I've had some therapy and I've sort of healed that part of my life I mean I it, you know we, we all have these sort of pockets of wounds that are sort of inside us that sometimes surface and it, when it surfaces it comes out in certain behaviors or um, certain situations, and um, but I, I sort of, I, I recognize, um, I, I'm more aware, and I, I feel sort of healed.
0: And, and, and that's good to hear after such a traumatic uh, teenage years, your late teenage years, um, and that does give other people hope, Uh people who are going through it through uh, priests or because of other sexual predators out there. Um, I mean, in Hollywood and politicians, and we hear about these all the time. So it's good that your story gives hope. The book is Behind Secret Walls, The True Story of My Abuse by Catholic Priests. The author is Michael Roberts. Michael, we're just about out of time. The next show is busy setting up around me right now. I want to thank you so thank much for doing Thank you so for much for
2: sharing your, uh, your story with us and everyone.
1: It was a pleasure. And thank you, both of you, for having me as, as a guest. I really appreciate that.
0: And um, next week, our guest is Shelley Skeen. From, she's a senior attorney from Lambda Legal. Uh, everybody have a good week. And, Michael, again, thank you so much.
1: Yes, take care.
0: As we march down.